Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today both of the authors of the recently published book titled Constitutional Culture, Independence and Rights, Insights from Quebec, Scotland and Catalonia, published by the University of Toronto Press. In this book, uh, Dr. Javier Garcia Oliva and uh, Helen Hall look at the ideas of constitutional culture to help us understand um, how norms, how laws all work together um, to kind of figure out how things work in theory and in practice together. So thank you both for being with us on the podcast. If I can ask you to start by each introducing yourselves a little bit and explaining why you decided to write the book. Thank you very much, uh, Miranda. Yes, as, uh, it's a great pleasure to be with uh, all of you today, and we are obviously extremely grateful to you for this kind invitation. Uh, this book is, uh, means a lot to both of us, and we're going to talk uh, thoroughly in a second about uh, the rationale, why we decided to pursue this endeavor. But probably I should tell you a little bit about myself and invite my colleague also, Helen, to introduce herself. I am Javier Garcia Oliva, I'm a professor of law at the University of Manchester. I happen to be at the moment also the head of law in the wider School of uh, Social Sciences, and I am a constitutional lawyer. I carry out teaching and research in the field of constitutional law and the wider public law, usually from a comparative perspective. And I think that probably background will help you to and our uh, listeners to understand why we decided to embark uh, on this project. Um, my two main research uh, areas are obviously the legal response to sub-state entities in the United Kingdom, in Canada, in Spain. And that's obviously the scope of this Toronto University Press uh, book recently published. And my second research interest is the area of law and religion. Thank you. Helen? Yes, um, I'm an associate professor at Nottingham Trent University. Um, in terms of my sort of core profile, I work on um, private law, civil litigation and tort and family law. Uh, like Javier, I have a long-standing interest in law, religion, and belief, um, and particularly human rights in that context, especially human rights of um, children and, and vulnerable people in that context. And we both have a long-standing history, interest in, in history and culture in the field as well. Wonderful. Thank you for those introductions. I think they set up a lot of the themes that the book covers. Um, but before we get into them in detail, would you mind telling us a bit about the two key questions the book investigates and how you developed them? Yeah, I guess uh, probably if I may suggest also, I think it's important to understand, probably I overlook it in my brief introduction, the reasons why we had decided to write this book, Miranda, if I may suggest. Of course, please. Yeah, yes, because, uh, and then I'll, I'll embark uh, immediately on the very, very important question and absolutely critical that you have very rightly uh, raised, 
which is about the two key questions. In terms of the reasons why we wrote uh, this book, Helen and I have been collaborating with each other for a very good number of years. Um, we have written uh, a significant number of pieces uh, together. I think, uh, obviously, academically, we very much complement each other because we approach, uh, we really understand that law cannot be understood in a vacuum. We're going to talk about that in a second, but at the same time, we really consider that law is law. Therefore, these sometimes artificial divides between public law and private law are not necessarily very helpful, but it's very true that uh, we have an expertise in public law, in my case, and Helen brings all her expertise in private law, areas such as tort law or family law. Then when we approach uh, legal questions, we try to do it in a holistic manner, and we bring together our interests in both disciplines. Uh, we have written a, a book which was very important to us. Uh, is Religion, Law and the Constitution, Balancing Beliefs in Britain. That book was uh, published by Routledge in 2017. And obviously, when we were conducting, when we were carrying out uh, the research for that previous book, we found out that there was a very big gap between the way in which some aspects of the legal framework appear on paper and the way in which they function in practice. Let me just give you one example, if I may. For example, in theory, I'm thinking of the situation here in England, not necessarily in the whole of the United Kingdom, that's why I deliberately say England. In theory, state schools are required to have a daily act of worship of wholly or mainly Christian character. That is the law. But in reality, that provision is interpreted in a, in a much more flexible and inclusive way. And the wording alone of the provision wouldn't be that helpful. You really need to understand the wider context. Then... Of course, it goes without saying, there are very legitimate questions about why or whether even it should be on the statute book. But the real important message that Helen and I would like to convey is that in the research and writing of our previous book, we really, really came to the conclusion that law must be studied and approached in a much more holistic manner, from a wider perspective, much more than simply the words on the page. And this led us to ponder the interaction between law and society, and definitely between law and culture more broadly. And that is the reason why, after having completed that project, obviously we've been writing uh, articles together and so on, but we thought the next book has to be much more on this interaction between the law and the wider social context, which is, as you know, obviously the driving force for our TUP book. In terms of the two questions that uh, we need to highlight, I would, in, to sum up, I would say in a nutshell, those two questions are as follows. 
How does constitutional culture affect the way in which individual citizens experience the legal framework? And I really think at this stage I need to define what constitutional culture or how Helen and I have defined constitutional culture. With that term, we mean the norms and expectations that govern collective life within a jurisdiction. Then that would be the first question. And the second question, which is equally important, is what relevance does constitutional culture have to debates about major constitutional change? Then we have explored this latter question through the three case studies that we address. That, as you know, are Quebec in Canada. We look at uh, Catalonia in Spain, and we focus on Scotland in the United Kingdom. And how did you choose those three case studies? Well, I think uh, the reality is quite, um, the answer is quite uh, simple to an extent. It's pure pragmatism, Miranda, if I may say, because obviously we am a constitutional lawyer. I have... Uh, conducted research. Um, I live in the United Kingdom. I've been living here for more than 20 years. This is my jurisdiction now, and this is the area of the legal framework I research about much more frequently. But obviously, my first degree, even my LLM, uh, was in Spanish law, and that's an area I have continued researching on in the last uh, decades and throughout the years also Helen and I have had a strong interest in North America particularly we have focus on Canada and in fact we shall continue working on the Canadian jurisdiction in our next book because we're really fascinated by by it then Obviously, the three contexts have a lot of shared history and influences in terms of both the culture and power struggles within Western Europe and the territories that their nations colonize. Then this meant that apart from the pragmatic reasons that I have just shared with you, there are also very interesting, thought-provoking comparisons to draw but at the same time, we also knew that there were very interesting divergences. Then we chose those uh, three models, just to sum up, for pragmatism, but also because we thought they would really be illuminating. And I hope our readers have found that work uh, helpful. Wonderful. Thank you for explaining that sort of foundational aspect of the book. Getting in then to the arguments, um, can you tell us a bit about how lawyers perceive constitutions and why their perceptions of constitutional constitutions has impact on practice? Thank you. I love I love that question because uh, <laughs> sometimes we tend to think we academic lawyers and also practicing lawyers. I mean, perhaps sometimes we feel we approach. Uh, all these debates in a very different fashion from other people, from other members of our society, however knowledgeable they can be, and many people are probably much more knowledgeable than us. But the reality is that at the end of the day, 
we lawyers are heavily influenced by the society in which we live. And I would say, generally speaking, if I have to give a definition of how lawyers perceive uh, constitutions, I think most lawyers would understand constitutions as a sort of basket within which the legal frameworks are contained. That would be, I would say, an appropriate definition. And this basket would set out how laws are made and enforced Sorry, we use all these metaphors. You may have seen that we tend to do that in the book. And we also use those metaphors in our previous book, Miranda, because we really believe that they are helpful uh, to our readers. But those uh, baskets would contain the basic uh, rights of individuals, what is known in Spain, for instance, as la parte dogmática de la Constitución, for those of us who are Spanish speakers, and also they would contain the parameters within which legal and political power can be exercised. However, that's a very general, I should say, general, very general definition. I think once you get beyond this, it is much more complex. For example, the way in which uh, a lawyer from the United States of America would see the Constitution, given the very sacred and iconic status of the constitutional text for Americans, is going to be undoubtedly very different from the way in which a lawyer in the United Kingdom might think about the Constitution, which is, as we know, the United Kingdom, and this is the reason why I decided to remain in this country many years ago. I came here more than two decades ago just for a very brief visit. <laughs> I always tell my students they really need to be careful when they go somewhere because I thought I was going to be here for a few weeks. <laughs> and I've been in the United Kingdom for more than 24 years. Sorry, not 24, more than 22 years now. But um, I became completely besotted by this uncodified constitution, then the context is very different from what happens in, as I said, in the USA or in continental Europe, where I come from. Then it's a very different setting. We don't have a codified uh, text. And this is a country which takes pride in the gentle evolution of the legal system and has sometimes quite yawning gulf, I would say, between theory and practice. Think, for instance, just to give you one example about the role of the monarchy. Therefore, in another shell, I think there are some of these questions that we, constitutional lawyers, would answer in a similar manner in Spain, United Kingdom, and Canada. But as our research also has shown, they would be answered differently in the three contexts because of the idiosyncratic features. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. You mentioned metaphors in that answer, um, and I'd love to ask you about the biggest metaphor, I think, in this book, uh, which is understanding constitutional culture as a hard-boiled egg. Can you take us through <laughs> that metaphor? Yeah. No, I, I love... Uh, yeah, as I said, I am very, very happy to be writing with Helen. I think we really uh, academically complement each other. And she is 
somebody who uses uh, metaphors all the time. And then I owe her that. I didn't probably many years ago would be so, I was more traditional because I come from Spain and it's a wonderful jurisdiction, but perhaps when I was there, we didn't resort to metaphors that this frequently. I think they are really, really useful and they are very helpful. Then we use the penguin, for instance, in our previous book to refer to the role of the state and religious bodies. But that's a conversation for another day. Coming back to your question, why do we use the hard boy leg as a metaphor for this particular issue concerning constitutional culture? We wanted really to paint a picture of the relationship between the two elements of constitutional culture. And because this is the key, a key message of our book, I hope I am uh, skillful enough to present it to our listeners here. It's critical. As we said, the term constitutional culture refers to the norms, rules, and expectations governing collective life. Therefore, it's a wider concept. But within this uh, egg, oh, within this notion, and I will go back to the egg in a second, some of these are intralegal. That means that they form part of the body of law within the state that can be enforced by the courts. And others are extralegal, meaning that they are not just enforceable by the courts, but exist solely in the social realm. Well, the important thing is sometimes I think we, academic lawyers, and I blame myself as I, I'm not saying that I, I was always uh, paying attention necessarily to this reality. Sometimes we really look at what I have defined the intralegal elements, the enforceable law, without taking into consideration all these extra legal elements. Then this intralegal element, I would define it as, or Helen and I would define it, my apologies, as the yoke of the egg. This is what is enforceable. But in order to understand this yoke, we also have to look at the white of the egg. And that would be the extra legal elements, the what is technically speaking, if I'm not mistaken, I think the word is albumen of the egg. Then that is the combination, the legally enforceable element inside the egg, what is uh, really what we would define as laws of a state, that is uh, the intralegal dimension or the yoke of the egg, and all the social expectations, social conventions, rules governing our collective life, and so on. The societal side, that would be the extra uh, legal element or the white of the egg. Maybe Helen and I can present you with, because uh, I feel I've been talking quite a lot. <laughs> then maybe Helen, you would like to present uh, an example of that distinction. Yes, I mean, I think quite a, a good example, one that we often use with students because it's very relatable. Um, it is a criminal offence in England and Wales to serve alcohol to a person who is already intoxicated. And if you had that piece of information as, say, an extraterrestrial, and you were to beam down onto uh, an English city on a Saturday night, you might be very surprised. 
um, because the way in which um, both police officers and you know pubs and bars interpret and apply that isn't something that you would get just from looking at the letter of the law in and of itself. Um, because the reality is that there is a tacit understanding that such places do serve people, even when they're intoxicated, and tend only to stop if they are causing some sort of a problem. And there isn't really any intent to enforce that law quite the way that it's written. But you wouldn't be able to get that if all you do is look at the legal text. So our argument is essentially, if you want to understand how the law works, you need to know something about the expectations and assumptions of the people who are interpreting and applying it. That makes a ton of sense. And I think that I understand why you use that example with students, because it does um, make it very relatable. Um, can you tell us a bit about kind of talking through some of the pieces of the hard-boiled egg the key similarities and differences between the sort of white bit of the egg um, across the three cases? Yeah, no, I would say, if I may come back <laughs> to the discussion, I think the example presented by Helen was really eloquent, and we, we use it in our teaching because it's, as you were saying, Miranda, quite compelling and very, very useful. I would say that when it comes to the whites of the eggs, we have found really, really interesting distinctions amongst uh, the three different contexts. And then I would say that, for instance, one very, very interesting example relates to the cultural differences in relation to family settings, particularly parents and children. This then play out in litigation and policy debates around the autonomy of young people and their freedom to make decisions about their own lives without parental involvement. Let me just give you then, for instance, if you really look at the reality of uh, the United Kingdom, Helen and I have really in the book we really look at very, very closely the response of both English and Scottish courts in relation to family cases. And that's the, obviously, the intralegal dimension, the legal enforceable element. But uh, in order to understand how the actors, which could be the judiciary, but it could be in other contexts, members of parliament or members of the wider society respond to the legal system, we need to understand that the Scottish model, for instance, focuses very, very much on the autonomy of children. There is a lot of emphasis on, on that critical element. Children are not viewed as a branch of their parents. I have to say that Helen and I really concur with that approach. Obviously, they cannot make any decision because they're minors, but I think there should be a legal recognition that must be preceded by a societal recognition of the autonomy of children. England, on the contrary, in my view, perhaps not so successfully, uh, tends to approach uh, the rights of minors in a very different manner, emphasizing, obviously, the role of parents, with which, understandably, we don't take any issue that's a critical part of this puzzle. But at the same time, somehow, 
undermining the legitimate interests on the part of the children. If you look at the Spanish context, on the contrary, just to give you one, one example, another example, there are very, very similar responses to the rights of, in the, of uh, minors in both Catalonia and the rest of Spain. And in that sense, the, the societal expectations in both Catalonia and the rest of Spain seem to be very similar to each other. And is this idea of an emphasis on the rights of parents over the rights of children. Then, yes, there are fascinating differences in the whites. And those differences, which are societal differences, have and obviously have legal consequences. Yes. I mean, I, I think if I might just add to that, I think that's really well explained. It's also important to appreciate here that we're dealing with situations where everyone acknowledges that both rights are in play. You know, everyone acknowledges that parents, um, it's appropriate for them to make decisions about their children and their family unit. And everybody also makes, you know, acknowledges it's appropriate to give young people um, autonomy insofar as they're capable of, of exercising it. But the question is, there are gray areas and times when you have to make policy decisions about which set of rights are going to be prioritized when you could legitimately answer either way and still be operating within a rights-respecting liberal democratic framework. And it's at that point that culture becomes really important. It's the cases that could justifiably go either way and the cultural expectations of the decision makers tends to be what swings it, if, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think that that's a really useful um, example in the book that you've both explained to us to kind of make that make sense. Um, I think in the abstract, it's too easy to go, well, how could you have on paper to kind of both be equal? That doesn't work really. But I think you've both explained to us kind of that difference between sort of what works on paper and why we need to sort of think it through with real examples. Um, and this is sort of a theme throughout the book. Uh, you talk about dissonances between high constitutional culture and the reality. Um, the reality, especially within these sort of sub-national, specialized, slightly contested jurisdictions of Quebec, Catalonia, and Scotland. Can you tell us a bit more about what these dissonances look like? Absolutely. And if I may, because this is a very constitutional law-based question, <laughs> and then from this moment onwards, Helen, if you want just to to take all other questions, otherwise uh, I feel I'm monopolizing this. But because this is very constitutional law, if I may, Miranda, I would like to answer. I would say at uh, the high constitutional level, each context is radically different. I think there is this obsession with comparing apples and oranges. And then when we have debates about um, possible independence of Scotland, then people just immediately, or commentators and journalists, draw immediate comparisons between Catalonia and Quebec, and Quebec and Scotland. And I think uh, this is not right. It's not right because at the high constitutional level, each context is radically different. So, as I have said, another. Uh, it's a very important saying here, but it's really a comparison of apples and oranges. 
the relationship between each territory and the wider state is completely distinct, and each one is very unique. Let's start with the UK, if I may. In the UK, what we have is mainly, broadly speaking, a central state, which has moved in recent decades. We have some devolution of powers. Um, it's important, and it shouldn't be underestimated, and I think it's really progress steadily. Then we have, as we know, a Scottish Parliament, a Welsh Parliament, and a Northern Irish Assembly. Then the whole question about whether or not England should have its own parliament uh, for the English nation, because obviously the parliament in Westminster is the parliament for the whole of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That's a very interesting question in and of itself, maybe for another day. But the truth is that even though we have witnessed a significant degree of devolution in the last uh, few decades in the United Kingdom, from 1997 onwards, the truth is that the critical uh, constitutional principle in the UK, which is the supremacy of the British Parliament, remains. And this means that even though, in principle, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland legislate on different matters. At the end of the day, the British Parliament can decide to bring all these powers back under its uh, authority. Then this is very, very different from what happens in other uh, jurisdictions. Definitely in Spain, for instance, there is a constitution, 1978, which was produced as part of the transition to democracy from 1975, when General Franco, the dictator, passed away, to uh, 1978. And then Spain, from a territorial point of view, is clearly a hybrid model, is not centralist, and is not fully-fledged federal either. This is very interesting, because now I'm going to draw some comparisons with Canada, if I may. Then finally, we have the reality of uh, Canada. I should say, however, in fairness to the Spanish model, before I discuss Canada, that in the last few years, certainly uh, the Spanish model has moved towards further federalism. Then uh, in many, many ways, even though perhaps at the very beginning it was very hybrid, nowadays, in 2023, is much closer to a federal model than to a centralist state. Then finally, we have the complexity of Quebec. And I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, working on the Canadian model and the, and the Quebec model in the last uh, few years. I think it's been absolutely fascinating because, as we know, uh, there is uh, explicit recognition in Canada within the Can Canadian constitutional framework that Quebec is a nation. And that's something that doesn't happen in Spain in relationship to Catalonia, for instance, which were very, very clearly the Spanish constitution of 1978 says there is only one nation, and that's the Spanish nation. And, once again, drawing comparisons with the United Kingdom is not problematic at all because the legislation coming from Westminster 
clearly recognizes that the Scotland is a nation and it refers to its legislature as the Scottish National Parliament. But then within the Canadian context, we have that reality. There is that explicit recognition of Quebec as a nation and the striking reality that Quebec has never actually agreed to the current constitution, despite very repeated efforts to bring this about. So all in all, I have presented you with three very different models comparing or assuming that uh, the high constitutional culture is identical in the three countries or is almost uh, the comparison or the, the common elements are overwhelming. I think there are some common el elements, but the reality is that the distinctions, the differences amongst the three systems are rather striking. I agree. Helen, is there anything you'd like to add? No, no, I think that was extremely comprehensive. Thank you. <laughs> it was. Um, we've mentioned a few examples already, um, and I think what they've done so far is really illustrate how powerful uh, particular topics can be in illustrating all of these complexities. So I wasn't surprised. In fact, I was quite pleased in the book that um, towards the second half, there are some types of legal debates, I suppose, that you go into in more detail to illustrate this. Can you tell us a bit about what topics you chose to look at at this level and how you decided which to examine? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I mean, in terms of the specifically constitutional debates, we tended to focus on issues that went to uh, identity or autonomy, because those obviously have relevance uh, both to sort of international requirements in terms of self-determination and also the things that people on the ground are, are really concerned about. So one uh, example uh, for instance, was, say, language education in the three settings because this clearly has an impact on the lives of um, many people. And we chose this because of the pivotal role that language plays in the preservation and the transmission of culture. And also the language that we speak and the language that we converse in uh, shapes human interactions and thought patterns. So you can't really get something more fundamental than that. Um, and also there's zero doubt about its significance, which is why it continues to be such a hot button issue. Uh, another key question was uh, legislative freedom. Obviously, this goes to the heart of uh, autonomy for the sub-state territories and also the scope within which those institutions are allowed to act. Now, obviously, there the, some of the differences that Javier just outlined um, are going to have an enormous impact. And the question is, though, does the constitutional doctrine treat those entities as exercising power, which is being effectively delegated from the center? So are they being allowed to sort of being tasked to do something, but with the sort of goodwill and permission of the center within certain boundaries, as is uh, in terms of legal theory, although obviously it's not politically uncontroversial, to put it mildly, um, the position in, in the UK, or are we dealing with situations where there are separate spheres of influence and action? And the question is, is this a matter for the central or the sub-state authorities? And that tends to be much more uh, the model in, say, Canada or, or the Spanish constitution as well. So in a lot of ways that covers, um, I mean, reading it, that, that covers that they, these different areas treat these aspects 
mostly similarly, or at least in, there's clear similarities that can be found between them, even if they're obviously not identical. But some of the things surfaced as well were really quite different. Can you tell us about the types of rights that you saw the biggest differences between the three case studies and why that might be? Absolutely. Uh, and I mean, ironically, one of them is, is the issue I just mentioned of language education, uh, particularly when it comes to the language that you use for the medium of actually teaching. And you've got um, three totally different contexts with Catalonia and Scotland essentially representing two extremes. So in Catalonia, there is a program of immersion with Catalan as the default language in most publicly funded schools. And despite various court rulings determining that actually the nature of some of these immersion programs has been unconstitutional and the exclusion of Spanish has been too great, nevertheless, um, Catalonia is, is very much pursuing Catalan education. In contrast, in Scotland, when it comes to Gaelic medium education, um, it's in some ways quite a disappointing picture insofar as parents do not have a right to opt in to Gaelic medium education should they wish to do so. Um, in many areas, there is no provision available. And obviously, there are complex political questions about funding and use of funding. Um, but it is nevertheless the case that you cannot access, you have no guarantee of access to um, funding in that minority language. Now, of course, I should point out in passing that, of course, uh, Scotland's linguistic um, distinctive nature of it in linguistic terms is represented by Scots as, as well as Gaelic. But the thing is that Scots and English are mutually intelligible. And therefore, that doesn't really answer the problem of this uh, extremely vulnerable minority language that isn't getting anything like the sort of uh, protection and recognition that you see elsewhere. And Quebec actually comes somewhere in the middle. Um, here we have a situation where there is a default position of, of education being in, in French. Um, but there are provisions for some families to access uh, English medium education if certain criteria are satisfied. And they're far more um, flexible and accommodating than is, is the case in Catalonia. So you really see in the three contexts, three different um, approaches, uh, which isn't to compare anyone negatively with anyone else. Because again, in every setting, you're dealing with a different set of social, political uh, logistical and economic things to deal with. But the way in which these debates play out on the ground is quite different in all three. That's a really interesting example. Um, thank you for taking us through it again. It's quite a relatable one, right? That's a topic that's often in the news um, and interesting to see in this particular context. Zooming out from the specifics um, of topics covered in the book, was there anything that either of you came across in the research or writing of this that might have been surprising? Obviously, you're both massive experts on the topic, but quite often digging into these details does sometimes reveal something. Yes. Um, I mean, I don't know what, to what extent it was a surprise, but it was certainly something that it was useful to be reminded of in that uh, both of us, I think, were really struck by the extent to which law and constitutions are actually a collective project, uh, whether or not people on the street realize it, it's not just about what parliaments, legislatures or judges do. Those kind of bodies uh, can make rules and they can make pronouncements, 
But what that's actually going to mean for the lives of individuals, that's going to depend on the interpretation of lots of different people in society. So police officers, civil servants, social workers, doctors, host of other people. And even when it comes down to whether individuals are going to obey the law in a particular context or what they think their compliance means. So if we remember um, some of the the debates and the challenges that there were during the COVID-19 pandemic about lockdown rules and what governments dared to try to impose, bearing in mind you had to walk this tightrope between um, public health and also laws that people were willing to respect, you really come to realize that law is something that is a project that involves us all. It's uh, not just for lawyers, it's for everyone in a society. We all ultimately have a part to play and, and are playing that part, consciously or otherwise, in the norms and the rules that, that govern our life together and also govern the ways in which we do or don't protect the rights of, of vulnerable people in our society. And I would like to add, if I may, I think that was so eloquently, anyway, presented by Helen, but uh, I think it was uh, a really, I mean, we were not really uh, surprised, as uh, Helen said. Obviously, we've been conducting research on this area uh, for a number of years, and but we were just really, it was a very humbling experience to realize and to obviously see how in practice uh, the citizenship, uh, ordinary citizens in our jurisdictions really embrace the law, abide by the law, are very proud of their legal frameworks, generally speaking. I think in that sense, it was quite a positive and optimistic uh, finding. It goes without saying, let's not fall into complacency. But uh, critically, I think we are very, very fortunate to live in those three jurisdictions, in, in all honesty. And even though, of course, there are many things that could be better, I, I think we discovered, obviously, that... Uh, this is a, undoubtedly a collective project. And people like the three of us have a role to play. And I think, uh, I mean, I always find it a bit overwhelming <laughs> when you said you are experts. Well, we have been conducting research on these areas uh, for many, many years. Whether or not we're experts, uh, obviously other people uh, will be able to say, but it's true that we love studying the legal system i am absolutely i couldn't really conceive my life without my academic uh, career i love my job i love the research side the teaching side i think uh, obviously our public authorities conduct and carry out such important functions and we can be very critical but we are obviously uh, also very uh, we were very impressed by the commendable work carried out by members of parliament by the judiciary but at the same time once again as Helen was saying constitutions are a collective project they bring us together then in the fulfillment in the running of our uh, constitutions we can rely exclusively 
on the legislature. We can just depend on the executive. It's not just a matter for the judiciary. This is something that really applies to every single of us. And this is the beautiful conclusion, obviously, one of them, of this uh, research project. And it's something, obviously, we really want to, con to continue doing. Interestingly enough, I, I was uh, fortunate enough to be made a, a full-time professor in the UK uh, a couple of uh, years ago. And then when I, you have what is known as an inaugural lecture, I was really humbled by the presence of uh, my peers, my students. It was a really moving and humbling experience. But then I chose <laughs> that topic because to me it's very important. The question of the presentation was whose constitution is it? Now I was referring to the UK, but equally it could be applicable to Canada or Spain or other jurisdictions. These constitutional projects are a joint endeavor. They bring us together. Then the role of our citizens, <laughs> beyond those of us who have an interest in the legal realm, is absolutely critical. Then, yeah, that was something that uh, we really came across in our research, in the writing of our book. I was not surprising, but it was a really powerful uh, discovery. Thank you both for that. That's a great way to come nearly to the end. Um, leaving only my final question. Uh, you've obviously done a lot of work together before. Is there anything you're working on next now that this book is done? Yes, there is. Um, we are writing a book on uh, law and the supernatural in uh, the United Kingdom and North America. So including what is, is now um, Canada and uh, the US. Um, but the book looks at the historical perspective on these issues and uh, comes through into the modern period. Obviously, it picks up on our long-standing interest in uh, religion and belief, but also the interactions between law and culture and how, uh, particularly as a lot of these issues have uh, an especial impact on people like women, um, people like uh, ethnic and cultural minority groups, um, the way in which these things are treated. And we're looking at things like witchcraft and uh, exorcism and beliefs in ghosts and, and various ways in which that has interacted with the legal framework and continues to do so. We're loving it, Miranda. It's, <laughs> it's quite different uh, from obviously constitutional, well, to an extent it's different, but there are lots of uh, parallels, uh, parallelisms that we could really find in our work. But uh, yes, as I was telling you at the very beginning of our interview. We do carry out research on constitutional law in my case. Helen is also then obviously both of us uh, write uh, solo pieces because that's part of uh, life. We have different interests too apart from our common interests but when it comes to writing together we really focus on those constitutional law issues that have been clearly uh, the scope of uh, our TUP book that we have been absolutely delighted to discuss with you today. And our second research interest is obviously law and religion. Then we are moving back to that area for this particular book. Well, but uh, we shall see what, what the future lies. 
We will have to have you back when that book is out to tell us all about it. But of course, in the meantime, the book we've been discussing is Constitutional Culture, Independence and Rights, Insights from Quebec, Scotland and Catalonia, published by the University of Toronto Press. Thank you both so much for being with us to tell us all about the book. It's been a real privilege. Thank you for having us. Thank you.